Ah, a little lad just staring at my fingers. Would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? The story of good and evil? H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see, these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch and I'll show you the story of life. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging, one against the other. Now watch them. Old brother left hand. Left hand hates a fighting. And it looks like love's a goner. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hot dog loves a winning. Yes, sirree. It's love that won. And old left hand hate is down for the count. Welcome to Worth Watching, Host Choice, where we hosts finally get to choose what we're watching. And today I've chosen the 1955 film, The Night of the Hunter. I'm your host, and I never wanted to host a podcast, but the Lord had his plans for me. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, who often spends his nights rocking on the porch with a shotgun in his lap. Yep. Hello, Guy. <laughs> Hello, Ron. So, you know, we've talked about this before, but people have this image of us podcasting like from a beach in the Bahamas while we're drinking rum, you know, living the good life. <laughs> and, you know, okay, the rum part might be true, <laughs> but uh, in reality, we record this from the podcast minds, you know, where we're scrabbling for crumbs while making our corporate masters rich. <laughs> I didn't know anybody was getting rich from it, so that's good. <laughs> and, you know, obviously it's our contractually obligated coverage of 60-year-old uh, Doctor Who episodes and uh, guest suggestions like Kill Bill and Office Space that bring in the big bucks. But every once in a while, we buck our corporate masters and just want to watch whatever we want. And, of course, then we don't get to eat for a week, but, you know, that's the sacrifice we make. <laughs> so Night of the Hunter is... One of my favorite films of all time, and when we did the season of Rage Against the Machine, we kept seeing references to it pop up in all these different films. So I figured it's time we, we go to the source and see if it holds up. And I believe I originally saw this at the Guggenheim Museum in Los Angeles, and this is a museum where you actually have to take a train like up the side of a mountain to get to it. It's a really oh. interesting place, and uh, in the evenings... It turned out that they show films, so we went and watched a couple films, and they actually just project the films onto, like, the side of a building, and it's kind of interesting. Hmm. And uh, I think that's where I first saw this, and, and it had a huge uh, impact on me. And uh, what what's your background with this film? I know you recommended it to me years ago, and I watched it years ago, and I... I liked it. It's a it's a little offbeat in some ways, but it's a it's a neat movie overall. Yeah, I, I've seen various cultural references to it. You know, uh, certainly the uh, love and hate on the knuckles that pops mm -hmm. up everywhere. But uh, oh, and then I realized while watching it this time, uh, I recognized uh, Robert Mitchum, and it turns out he's in one of my very favorite movies. He played the president of the network in Scrooged. Yeah, so, yeah. That's one you keep bringing up. Uh, maybe that should be your choice since, uh, <laughs> since uh, I never saw that be. one. So this film has a really interesting background. It is the only film ever directed by Charles Lawton. And today, most people probably have either maybe barely heard of him or wouldn't know who Charles Lawton was at all, which would be amazing to people like from the 1950s. 
Charles Lawton was a hugely famous actor. And uh, the only comparison I could think of is like Robert De Niro, right? I mean, he was just mm. incredibly big and well-known. And if you told people in the 1950s that in 2022, <laughs> nobody would really know anything that Charles Lawton acted in, but hmm. the most famous thing that he had done was this film he directed. They'd be like, what are you talking about? He directed a film, you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and Robert De Niro directed a film and a while back and imagine, you know, going forward 50 years and that's the only thing they knew about him. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, now, was mm-hmm. Charles Lawton, was he one of the Rat Pack? For some reason, in that I'm associating his name with that, and I could be completely you, are wrong. You, you mean the singers, like Sinatra and all that? Yeah. No, no, no. He wasn't part of that. <laughs> um, oh, I thought I thought he was associated with them somehow. But maybe if he was, I'm not familiar with it. Well, I'll say that. So I, I'm not going to, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. Uh, he was probably best known and, and probably his, his most remembered performance, which I haven't watched yet, and I, I maybe will watch it for the show sometime, is um, Hunchback of Notre Dame. He did a version of that mm. that is pretty famous. So he, you know, worked really hard on this film, his first film as a director, and did all sorts of, you know, I think kind of groundbreaking things, as we'll talk about as we go through it, and really put his heart and soul into it. And it was a total failure when it came out, not only commercially, but critically. People just panned it. And he Hmm. was heartbroken, and he never did another film again. He couldn't bring himself to do it. Hmm. And um, it turns out, you know, he was, in my opinion, as we'll see, a brilliant director. So it's really unfortunate because we probably lost some really good work that he might have done if he'd continued Hmm. on as a director. Hmm. We will see as we go through here. And as he's mentioned, we have Robert Mitchum. We have Shelley Winters. Um... A young Shelley Winters, mm-hmm. early role. Lillian Gish, who was, you know, a well-known actress and um, uh, yeah. has an amazing character. She's from right here in Northeast Ohio, uh, Massillon, yeah. about maybe a, a less than a half hour from me, probably. Uh, wow. They've got a street named after her and a big mural, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> wow. And this was based on a well-known book written by a guy named Davis Grubb, and I think he has his own um, really interesting history, but... No time to get into it today. <laughs> so mm-hmm. worth looking up if you're curious about all this. So with that context, we'll get into the film. All right. It's kind of a weird opening here, and I'll explain how this came about in a bit. But it starts out with... Lillian Gish sort of, you know, pictured against a starry sky. So it's a very uh, surreal image. It's, you know, it's not like you're actually seeing her actually standing somewhere. She's literally kind of in the heavens, right? Mm-hmm. And she's talking to the heads of these children who are also in the heavens with the starry background. And mm-hmm. she's telling them Bible stories and parables. And then she starts reading the Bible and she says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. And as she's saying this, we now transition to an over- head shot of an area and close in and there's some kids playing around a house and they end up finding a woman's body in the house. Mm. And then we see Robert Mitchum, who's playing Harry Powell. And this, by the way, uh, is based on a somewhat true story with a guy who was also called Powell, who did a bunch of what 
Harry Powell does in this movie. Hmm. And he is driving along. I think it's a Model T, actually, because this is the Depression. And he's driving along the Model T, and he's in a pastor's outfit, right? Black hat, uh, the collar, black suit, all this. Today he's got a string tie like uh, like Colonel Sanders. <laughs> yeah, and he's talking to the Lord. <laughs> well, now, what's it to be, Lord? Another widow? How many has it been, six? Well, I just remember. You say the word, Lord. I'm on my way. And he mentions that uh, obviously the Lord's okay with killing because there's lots of killing in the Bible. <laughs> so, sounds like a pretty good excuse to me. Yeah. And he goes on about how the Lord hates perfumed smelling things, lacy things, things with curly hair. <laughs> and as he's doing this, we now see him watching a striptease um, in a, you know, kind of disreputable theater <laughs> sort of thing. And as he's watching the woman on stage, one of his hands clenches up and we see that on his hand is, is on his knuckles is tattooed hate. Then a switchblade knife bursts through his pocket. So the knife just, you know, the knife Ooh. literally jams out of the pocket or cuts the, the, the pocket and uh, I have no idea what a hard thing extending out from his clothes like that might mean. But <laughs> <laughs> now I, I missed the knife uh, poking out. I must have been glancing at something else. But, yeah, it's it's huh. just a couple seconds there. But uh, yeah, it's a it's one of the. There are a lot of little bits in here where you know they had sensors at the time, and you had to be very careful about what you could put in a film. And there's a lot of things that get into this film that I'm surprised they got away with, and this is one of them because it's it's a very very thin metaphor. <laughs> I mean, <you> know. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you know throughout the whole movie he expresses his disdain for not not just for women but for sex in general. Yeah. Um, and yet here he is in this, uh, yeah. in this strip club. So it's, a, uh, um, yeah, I can imagine him having, uh, some interesting, uh, bouts of, uh, you know, remorse and, uh, all kinds of, uh, little weird habits. <laughs> I yeah. And I, I think he has to be, yeah, he has to be very conflicted because as we'll see, I mean, he's not joking about not wanting women and all that. Right. I mean, he doesn't do any of that even when when he has the opportunity right and then a cop finds him in the theater and it turns out that car we saw him in was stolen and he gets 30 days in jail and now we see a young boy and girl this is john and pearl they're kind of our main characters of the film playing with a doll and their dad drives up to the house they're outside in a field and their dad drives up to the house, and he's holding a whole bunch of money and bleeding. And, you know, I didn't look up his name. I swear I recognize this actor. Like, it looked to me like it was Peter oh, Graves or something. You know, yeah, I actually had read a little bit about the movie yesterday, and that is a young Peter Graves. And I yeah. never would have recognized him if I hadn't seen that. <laughs> well, then I'm proud that I that I saw who he was. But, yeah, he's really young yeah. compared to what we're used to, yeah. So he's holding $10,000 in his hands, and he needs to hide it quick. And he's debating where to hide it, and he's looking all over, you know, the house, the barn, you know, where where wouldn't they look? And and then he realizes he knows the perfect place, and he runs off. 
And I'll mention here that, you know, we had this boy and girl, um, John and Pearl, and Lawton, the director, got along very well with, with the boy. But he had a really hard time with the girl. And she's very young. She's probably like four years old or something, right? I'm, I'm not good at, you know, telling the ages of, of kids. But uh, well, sure. she's really young. And so I, it was just a real pain to get her to do what he needed, I guess. There's actually huh. a documentary, which I have on my server, if you want to look at, that was released not long ago which is about two or three hours of showing him directing this film. And I haven't got a chance to review it yet, but it's apparently very interesting. And, you know, you get to see his relationships with the actors and how he directed them. And Ooh. he didn't have to direct Mitchum at all. Like, Mitchum knew exactly what he needed to do and just did it, you know. Hmm. You know? Yeah, I enjoy the young girl, Pearl. Uh, she actually uh, has some pretty good moments, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. she, she comes across... Uh, she has a couple of really funny line deliveries. There's one in particular that I'll mention, and I can't even explain what's so funny about it. But yeah, anyway, I, we'll get I, to you, it. you would never know from watching the film that that they had a problem there, right? So they did a good job with that, and she also looks great. Like she just has this kind of angelic face, you know, little, little girl face, mm-hmm. and and she's very very naive, and and she does a really good job of communicating that. Yeah. So the cops arrive and. As they're arriving, the dad makes John swear to protect his sister and to never tell anyone, not even their mother, where the money is hidden. He says, you got common sense. She ain't. (laughs) (laughs) There's some truth to that, as we'll find out. Although, she also is more perceptive than I actually had remembered when I was watching it this time. So, we'll see that, too. So, Hmm. like, she actually guesses what's going on pretty early, but then she's a, you know, well, we'll get there. Yeah. And now we have a really key moment that we'll come back later in the film, which is the cops, you know, kind of violently, at least not violently the way we'd think of it now with all the different videos we've seen of when cops kind of go overboard. But, you know, they take him down and bring him to the ground and and handcuff him. And his son, John, is just devastated by watching this, and it really leaves an impression with him. And then we see the dad in the same court we saw before. And it's kind of interesting because it's, you know, they put him in the exact same spot that Robert Mitchum was in, you know, looking so it's really clear. <laughs> and, you, and of course, you can immediately make the connection. Oh, so Robert Mitchum's in this prison and now this guy's in this prison. <laughs> Maybe they're going to encounter each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mitchum got 30 days. The, you know, the dad gets, uh, his name is Ben. He gets hung or he gets sentenced to be hung. Now, I, it's a little unrealistic. Yeah, hanged. Okay, well, <laughs> uh, well, in this film, I think it's not inappropriate to to say it that way. But it is a little unrealistic, I think. I mean, who knows? Maybe in the Depression era, it was different. But when you have someone who is going to be uh, killed, you don't put them in the normal cells with people who are there for like thirty days, right? I mean, that's a recipe for disaster because mm-hmm. you know you're just going to have conflict and problems and everything. Normally, you'd put oh, yeah. them, like, in solitary confinement. But, you know, story wouldn't work if he did that. So <laughs> he's in the same cell as Harry Powell, and he's on a bunk bed, and he's talking in his sleep. And while he's doing that, Powell is trying to get him in his sleep to reveal where the money is. <laughs> and Ben wakes up and realizes what's happening, and he punches Powell. <laughs> and it turns out Ben killed two men while he was robbing a bank. And... He says he robbed the bank because he got tired of seeing hungry children during the Depression, and he didn't want that to happen to his children. And <laughs> you, you notice this little theme here, and, and we saw a lot of this in our Rage Against the Machine series, which is 
People have all sorts of honorable reasons for robbing banks. <laughs> oh, sure. He had Bonnie and Clyde being the champions of the poor who, uh, uh, they, I think they gave generally gave more inspiration than actually money <laughs> yeah. to the poor. But uh, now, in this case, yeah. I mean, he did give the money to his son, and he told his son, mm-hmm. "You know, when you're when you're an adult, this will be yours." So he did follow through on it. But to get there, he killed two people, I and mean, it's not good. Yeah. Powell says if he had that ten thousand dollars, he could buy a massive temple, you know, much bigger than the ones that have been built recently, and he could, you know save people and all this, but Ben isn't oh, interested. Yeah. <laughs> he could even uh, take advantage of the growing number of television sets in American homes. <laughs> he didn't say that, but uh, <laughs> right. he might have been thinking it. Yeah, he, he had an early <laughs> vision to be one of those, uh, what do we call them now, the pastors of the mega churches, right? The, oh, yeah. So Ben is not interested and refuses to tell him anything. After the execution, we see Powell thanking the Lord for putting him in this cell at this time. It was clearly... His intent for him to know about the $10,000. And then we see school kids taunting John and Pearl, and they're singing songs about their dad being hanged. <laughs> and they're making yeah, stick figure drawings of it. it. It sounds, no, I don't know if it is like an actual old historical song or if it's something they made up for the movie, but it's it's supposed to be like an old traditional song that kids would sing, like Ring Around the Rosie or that type of thing, you know. Except it's about the hangman, but uh, it's a, it's it's a cute scene and also you know a sad scene because the kids are have to stand there and watch the other kids singing this stuff. Because of all the troubles, uh, their mother has pulled them out of school, so they were actually just walking by the school when they got made fun of, and then they go to a store, and John stares at a watch in a store window. And, you know, that'll probably come back uh, at some point. <laughs> and the store owner harasses them about where their dad hid the money. She's not nice at all. Mm. These are little kids, and people are really not nice to them because <laughs> their dad, you know, did this. Yeah. Shelly Winters, who plays Willa, their mother, is working in an ice cream shop. And the owner is an older woman pressuring her to get married again for the children. Now, I mean, her husband just got fried, you know, probably like a few days before or something. And it's time to time <laughs> to get a new husband. Shelley Winters, um, she's, uh, I think she's quite pretty in this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, you know, growing up in the seventies, I would see her in the seventies flicks and, uh, you know, she didn't really register much with me, but, uh, but she was, a she was kind of a looker, you know, in a sort right. of, uh, understated way, but yeah, neat. Yeah. It's also interesting. Like probably the most that I've seen her was in her later life when she was in things, um, Oh, what was the sitcom with the woman who's all disturbed? Uh, Roseanne Barr? Roseanne, yeah. Okay. So she was in that, and, and she was pretty old at that point, and so that's kind of the, you know, the image I had of her. But anyway. Uh, okay. As they're talking about how she should get married, we keep cutting to these very menacing shots of this black train spewing smoke, getting closer and closer to them. Yeah. It's an old steam locomotive uh, because this is in the Depression and all that. Yeah, the only thing they they missed out on since they're doing all of these kind of, you know, sexual illusions, they didn't have it go into a tunnel at some point. I was looking forward to that. (laughs) He probably would have bailed out. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, it wouldn't be consistent. And that night in their bedroom, John is telling Polly a, a bedtime story, and he's 
he's standing in a place between um, the window and the wall, and there's light from a uh, lantern outside that's coming through. So, you know, we see these shadows on the wall. And while he's telling this story, uh, all of a sudden we get this big shadow of Harry Powell, you know, with the hat and uh-huh. and everything. It's pretty menacing. And it turns out he's standing outside their fence just looking at the house. And after a bit, he walks away and he's singing that song about leaning in the, was it, leaning in the arms of the Lord? or Leaning on the everlasting arms. Yeah. yeah. And this becomes a bit of a theme yeah. throughout. And then John is at the riverside and he's looking at a skiff. It turns out it's his father's skiff, so it's just a little boat. But it's kind of in a bad shape. It's like full of water and clearly, you know, messed up. And he's glad it hasn't been stolen. He's friendly with the ferry master there who's kind of got a – he's an old guy and he's got kind of irrelevant job now because we see a ferry go by and, and he mentions it no longer stops there. So he's a ferry master for a place with no ferry. Well, I, well, I think uh, I think that was like a steam – that was a big paddle wheel steamboat like a river cruise type, you know, ship. Uh, I think his ferry might be more go straight across the river. Yeah, he probably does that. But he does mention that the boat used to stop there and it doesn't anymore. Right. This guy is, you know, kind of this nice old guy, as we'll see, kind of an alcoholic, though. And yeah, Uncle Bertie is. Yeah. You got, you know, that classic sort of nice old man beard and that sort of thing. And he tells John that he talked to a man who knew his dad from prison, and this guy is in town right now. John goes to the ice cream shop where his mother works, and he sees Powell is in there talking to her. And Powell is holding the doll that they were playing with earlier. And John rushes in, and Powell is telling them that he met Ben because he was a pastor in the jail. <laughs> <laughs> and he just quit yesterday. And then John notices the hate tattoo, you know, on his knuckles. And he offers to tell them the story of hate and love. And this is absolutely the most famous and influential scene from this film, right? Him, him. Mm. He goes through this whole pantomime with his hands where, you know, hate is winning and then love slowly starts winning and his hand flips over and all this. And, <laughs> and that's, that's what uh, has influenced all these different directors. But Powell tells him he's going to have to be moving on. And the people in the store beg him to stay. He's clearly, you know, gotten them. And John is just staring at him. He doesn't like him from the beginning. And Willa chastises him for staring at Powell, and Powell's like, "Oh, it's okay, you know." Yeah, he can be he can be pretty charming when he decides to turn it on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the censors' objections that they had to work carefully around was they really didn't want a pastor to be shown as a bad guy on screen, mm. and so. What Lawton had to do was to do his best to make it clear that this guy's not really a pastor. So he's pretending right. to be one, but he's not really one. So, yeah. yeah, and then and at one point much later, he'll get explicitly called out on that mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Well, it turns out there's a picnic coming up, and they ask Powell to stay for it. And then we're at the picnic, and the store owner who you know works with Willa is pressuring her to marry Powell. So you know this guy showed up you know, a day ago or whatever, and and her husband was just killed, and, you know, she's really putting the screws on her to marry him. Yeah, she's, uh, you know, the the Icy Spoon is her name, <laughs> the, the store owner, uh, her husband's Walt, and uh, she's, she's an interesting character because she, 
on the one hand, she seems to mostly mean well, but on the other hand, she has um, she has inherited some kind of meddling gene. You know, she's yeah. just got to have an opinion about everything, stick her nose into everything. Yeah, she's uh, very controlling. And also, I, I until just now, I did not make this connection. A, a little bit later in the scene, we'll see this. She actually has the same view of sex as Harry Powell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I never put that together very, before. Yeah, very similar. She's uh, she's more indifferent to it. I think yeah. she would say she she lay there and think of her cannon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, however, and this is where I was saying Willa is actually smarter than I kind of remembered her being. Right off the bat, she says she's worried that Powell might think she has that ten thousand dollars hidden somewhere, and maybe that's why he's interested in her. You know, uh, well, silly woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, she hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> and now we get my favorite scene, what you were just talking about, is while Powell and Willa are off in the distance talking, you know, in, in this picnic area, the store owner is lecturing everybody else at the table. And I don't know how they got this past the censors, but... <laughs> You know, she explains after 40 years of marriage, as you said, I just lie there and think of my canning. <laughs> and, and then later on, she says, a woman is a fool to marry for that. You know, the good Lord never meant for a decent woman to want that, not really want it. <laughs> so like, it's all just fake in a pipe dream. And then she has this kind of wistful look on her face. <laughs> yeah. It kind of makes yeah. me think that, you know, her husband seems like a nice guy, but maybe he wasn't the best. Uh, <laughs> Husband didn't have a fiery passion, yeah. maybe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, it's an interesting scene because I could just picture myself sitting there in the in her audience and uh, and just trying to keep a poker face, <laughs> <laughs> being noncommittal while yeah. she went talked about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Willa now calls John over, and she's been reassured because Powell has just told her that Ben told him that that money was thrown in the river and it'll never be found. So she doesn't have anything to worry about because he's not obviously not after the money. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) again, I don't know how they got this stuff past the censors. I just can't believe it. She now gets this, you know, really intense look on her face. And she says, I feel clean now. My whole body is just a quivering with cleanness. (laughs) 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 I'm just saying, jeez. Uh, this this film is dirtier than you know modern. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's you know that that's a uh, I've heard that expressed in many ways that uh, you know not revealing everything can be sexier than right the full Monty, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so that night, John visits the ferryman again and asks him when the skiff will be ready, and it's going to be about a week, so that could be important. <laughs> And he goes home, and guess what? Powell is there, um, and his mother is not. And Powell announces that he's marrying Willa tomorrow. <laughs> and John, who's you know very level-headed and usually on top of it, but he really dumbly blurts out that he'll never tell. Yeah. And as soon as he says it, he like covers up his mouth. <laughs> yeah, because of course he's you know just given up the game, and Powell's like. Well, Never tell me what. <laughs> and and then and this is really menacing, right? Because you know he means it. He's like, that's okay. No matter. We got a long time together, boy. <laughs> you know that he's just going to keep at this. Yeah. And it's the wedding night. 
And again, you know, uh, I think the sensors were asleep on the job practically because uh, Willa is so very excited, right? I mean, she's sort of, you know, stroking her chest and feeling beautiful and looking forward to the marital bed. Hmm. But Powell has a surprise for her. You know, when she comes in, he's got his back turned to her in bed, asks her to, like, close the shades on the window. And when she, you know, kind of makes her move, he makes it clear there's not going to be any hanky-panky around here. (laughs) (laughs) And as soon as she understands that she's not going to be getting any, she collapses in misery. (laughs) Yeah. And he makes... big disappointment, I'd say, for her. And he makes her stare in the mirror and says her body's for making children, not for the lust of men. And does she want any more children? And she says, no, she doesn't want more children. And then we see her sort of privately pray to God to help her so she can be what Harry wants her to be. Mm. So she's disappointed, but, you know, she's going to do whatever he wants. Yeah, and she's... uh... I think you could make a case for that uh, she kind of goes off. I mean, in the, in the coming mm-hmm. scenes, uh, she kind of goes off the deep end and mm-hmm. just sort of has a mental break of some sort, I think. Yeah, I think it's her trying to, you know, it's like, well, I'm supposed to be a wife and I'm supposed to meet my husband's expectations. And and that puts her in this really situation, let me say, that's just, you know, un, unsustainable. And, and uh, yeah, she just kind of goes nuts. So now the fairy master has repaired the skiff and he and John are out in it fishing. And he tells John he's not sure what's up at his house, but if he's ever in trouble, he can come to the fairy master and he'll help him out. And now we see Powell leading a religious revival. And this is kind of what you were talking about. All of a sudden, Willa is a total convert and she's intensely confessing that she drove her husband to murder her first husband to murder because basically because she was a slut with fancy clothes and face paint and and yeah. you know he got that money so she could buy more face paint <laughs> yeah and meanwhile outside pearl has taken the money out of the doll and is cutting it into doll shapes <laughs> yeah and it's pesos uh, so he may have actually gone south of the border to rob that yeah bank. i didn't notice that but i think the names of the guys he killed were more anglo style names so i don't know <laughs> but the but the bills are pay- labeled as pesos anyway and an interesting thing here, because she is this very young, very naive girl, but as soon as John comes up to her, she tells him he's going to be unhappy with her. Like, she knows that she shouldn't have done this. And she makes excuses. She's like, well, it's all still here, right? She's just been cutting it up, but it's all still here. I and, mean, of course, she doesn't really understand how money works or anything. <laughs> and he starts stuffing the money back into the doll, and Powell shows up behind them on the porch and it's a little hard to tell. I mean, you realize later he doesn't see it, but you you kind of think he might have seen the money, but I think he doesn't quite hear. Yeah, it was a, it was a real close shave yeah. uh, because they were just finishing up the cleaning as he stepped out of the house, but their backs were to him, so they were blocking his view of it. Yeah, and he's angry that John told his mother that Powell had asked him where the money is. But he also says, you know what, it doesn't matter because your mother believes me, not you. <laughs> Uh, and it's my word against yours. Yeah. And his word isn't worth a whole lot, it turns <laughs> out. Later in the kid's bedroom, Powell is once again interrogating John about where the money is. John is stubborn. So Powell switches and starts talking to Pearl, and he says her daddy said they should never have secrets. 
and he asks her about the money. And John knows she's about to tell him because she really likes Powell, right? I mean, she, yeah. you know. And so he throws a hairbrush at Powell's head <laughs> to keep to kind of interrupt them and keep her from talking. But this just gives Powell leverage because he just, you know, now he's in league with Pearl and looks at John and says, we can't have anything to do with them, you know. And he takes her downstairs so he can interrogate her further. And now Willa is coming home and through the window, she overhears Powell. and, and, And also, I will say, she has this beatific look on her face like she is she is this religious convert, right, who's totally believing in Powell and all this and and totally accepted her fate and lot in life. And she overhears Powell interrogating Pearl about the money. And of course he had been swearing that he had not been asking the kids about the money. Mm-hmm. And when Pearl won't talk, which is actually surprising, um, Powell gets quite nasty and calls her names and threatens to tear her arm off. And she screams and runs off and, and Willa hears all of this and she comes in and looks at Powell. And the weird thing is she's still looking at him as if she's in that kind of religious fervor state and totally trusting him but but it's clear and i think this is one of the great acting moments for her in this which is it is clear that that's one part of her and the other part of her is processing what she just heard Mm -hmm. and she's dealing with the fact that what she just heard just totally violates her current worldview right and so she looks at powell for a moment and then follows pearl um it's either upstairs or downstairs she goes through a door and next thing we see her in bed and she's praying and there's this kind of heavenly light on her face. <laughs> and uh, Yeah. If the, now, this is the scene where they're in the bedroom with the high, uh, mm-hmm. the high wall or the high ceiling. It's uh, a, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, a neat little shot. Well, and you say high ceiling, it, it kind of comes up to a high ceiling, but the ceiling is actually um, uh, cantilevered. Is that the word? Or, you know, it, it's actually very close to them, right? Like it's a small room and the ceiling is very close to them, but it goes up high. And actually the design of this room reminds me of one of the things that, that Lawton was trying to do here. He felt um, that modern sound films had lost some of the art that the silent films had created. And a lot of the production design, including of a room like this, I think, uh, of this film was designed to bring back silent film design sensibilities hmm makes sense and and when you think about it there's the things we see in here that are very unrealistic i mean this bedroom is very unrealistic where the the when they had that revival it was pretty much there was no room there was like a sheet behind people and and some you know torches i mean it it was a very kind Mm -hmm. of surrealistic uh design right oh yeah so pal she's in bed praying and pal is standing with his back to her and then he confronts her, and she now realizes Ben never told him the money was in the river. And he slaps her, but it has no effect on her. Again, she's now her. What I would say is she's now gone from her delusional spiritual state to a realistic one. She absolutely knows what's about to happen to her, mm. and she has accepted it. And there's nothing he can do to her that's you know going to impact her. Yeah, there's it's some definitely something along those lines. I mean, she's just almost uh tranquilized or sedated, yeah. you know, in some way. Yeah, so, you know, he gets out his knife and holds it up above her in a very dramatic way and she doesn't flinch and she just closes her eyes and she's just going to let it happen. And we don't see what actually happens, but 
next, the kids are sleeping in bed and they're woken up in the middle of the night by the car being started up. And, you know, this is the old fashioned thing where you got to, you know, um, turn the crank. Yeah, crank it up and all that. So it takes a long time for it to start up and it's very noisy. And John sees it drive off, but he doesn't really think much of it and gets back in bed. Mm-hmm. So the next day, Pal is in the ice cream store and he tells Ma and Pa Spoon <laughs> that Willa has run off with the car. Yeah, it's really bizarre where he takes this. He says he knew something was wrong from their honeymoon night because that's when she turned him out of the bed and he's like really devastated. <laughs> <laughs> and, there, and this is also weird because Ma Spoon there... Uh, Icy Spoon, I guess, which uh, is mm. a pretty funny name they had for her. You know, <laughs> she was the totally disinterested in sex, but she is horrified that Willa would have turned him down. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> but he's going to take the honorable route and stay and take care of the kids. And the Spoons think that Willa will come back. <laughs> but he uh, maybe not very smartly says, she'll not be back. I think I'm safe in promising you that. <laughs> <laughs> And he ends all this with, can't nobody say I didn't do my best to save her. And then we immediately cut. And I, we get what I think is one of the best shots in the history of cinema. It's really haunting. It's one of the things I always remember about this film. Mm-hmm. We're underwater. We see this you know, vegetation flowing in the current. Um, and then we kind of pan over and we see Willa tied to the seat of the car and she's still looking beautific. Um, her eyes are closed, but she still looks very, you know, human and uh, practically alive. And her hair is flowing in rhythm with the vegetation as the water goes along. And she's just very ghost-like. You know, she has white on and, and her face is very white. And they really, at a couple points here, just hold on this image. And it's mm-hmm. I, I think it's pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. And then we see a fishing hook appear. <laughs> and it gets caught up in the car. And, of course, the ferryman is fishing up above, and he looks down into the water, and now we get, you know, a, a from above view, which is also pretty interesting of this whole scene. One yeah, because the water is super clear, and, yeah. you know, so he can see several feet down into it. And I don't recall, um, you know, I've read a lot about this film over time, but I don't recall. I don't know if they had a doll here. Or pre- I mean, it really looked like her, but she is there for a long period of time in a situation where, especially then, I think it would have been hard for them to get air to her. So I have to think that this must have been a doll, but if so, it was really well done. Yeah, it it, it definitely looks like a person. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's, it's a well done scene. Yeah. And so we end with, again, going back down and uh, the shot of her, her hair flowing in the water. And that is yeah. the first half of the film. For as disturbing an image as, as it is, uh, it's actually photographed to look Beautiful, like yeah. you've got the the sunbeams, you know, the god rays coming down through yeah. the water, and you know, it's it's a, a very interesting uh, uh, directorial choice there. Yeah, I, I think they were very deliberately saying, "Here's a horrific thing, and we're going to give you just this, you know, practically something you'd put on your wall as a painting, <laughs> right?" I mean, it's yeah, a, yep. Well, that is the first half of the film. So now we see Powell standing in the yard outside the house. He's leaning on a tree there, and he's singing about leaning on the everlasting arms again. Mm -hmm. 
And he calls for the children very pleasantly, sounding very pleasant anyway. But as he walks to the house, uh, we get this little, uh, I don't know exactly what the term for it is, but, but it's where the edges of the screen come in and it's narrowing. It's all black, narrowing down to a single circle where you're still seeing the image. You know, and that sort of contracts down to a certain point where it's just showing you him in it. And then the scene changes and we, you know, the view is back to normal. We don't have that focused. And you mentioned that he said things in a pleasant way, but while you're watching this, it is very disturbing because it is clear that now that their mother is out of the picture, he is going to go to town on these kids, right? I mean, it is just, yeah. it's just obvious in his pose and the way, you know, he's moving and talking like this is going to get serious now. Yeah. <laughs> so the kids are in the basement. Uh, they're standing on the coal pile watching him out the basement window. John tells his sister, Pearl, he says that their mom has gone to Moundsville, which is probably what Powell told him. But he's probably a little skeptical because he did hear that car the night before. And they're definitely oh. hiding from him. I mean, you know. Yeah. You know. And John says that he's planning they're both going to run off tonight. And Powell searches the house for them. He finally figures out they're in the basement because he hears jars rattling on a shelf down there that they bump into. Uh, so they hide behind a barrel. Powell starts to come down the basement stairs, but then Icy Spoon sticks her head in the door and says, Yoo-hoo, Mr. <laughs> Powell, something like that. So he has to go back up and deal with her. Uh, he's telling her that the kids are giving him grief. They won't answer him. Uh, so she yells down the stairs, and they obey her. They come upstairs. They're filthy with coal dust. She's brought a hot supper for the family. You know, without uh, without Willa around to do the cooking, she figured she should help out. So Icy offers to wash up the kids, and Powell thanks her, but declines. After she leaves, Powell asks the kids, weren't they afraid down in the dark? <laughs> and then we get uh, a view back inside Uncle Bertie's little houseboat there. He's getting drunk and talking to the picture of his deceased wife. Then he's fretting that if he tells the police about the, about the car that he saw and the slit in Willa's throat, he mentions this, so somehow he could see that, although we didn't see that from the angles that we were shown. Mm-hmm. At least I, not that I could tell. He's afraid that if he tells the police, he's going to be blamed. I I don't know why he would think that because, I mean, it would make no sense. <laughs> yeah, we don't know his but, past. Uh, you know, maybe he's got yeah. a troubled past or something. You know, who knows? Yeah, yeah, it could be. It could be that uh, he's had run-ins with the police in the past. But he's not going to tell anyway, uh, which, of course, had he told the police... When he found out about it, we could have shaved at least a half hour off the movie, probably. <laughs> Although, I'm going to say on that, and I assume you appreciate this, this is a tight movie. I mean, it's really only about 90 minutes long, and there's mm-hmm. it's one of those where there's just not a wasted moment in this thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, plot-wise, if you're, if you're the sort of uh, barbarian who doesn't enjoy the visual stuff that's thrown in here and there then you could argue that some stuff could be snipped out but i'm i uh i'm i'd say the the sort of super it's not exactly superfluous because i think it's it serves a purpose in setting the mood and you know just giving you something to recall about it Uh, but 
but in terms of advancing plot, there's there's moments in here in the movie that don't really advance the plot. <laughs> but but overall, I agree, it is a pretty tightly built movie. But it would be even more tightly built if Uncle Bertie had told the police. <laughs> so he says, "Sweet heaven, save poor old Uncle Bertie." <laughs> Just sitting there getting drunk, feeling sorry for himself and. Well, I know I, the feeling. <laughs> yeah, I was just, <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, same thing. <laughs> so back at the house, Powell has spread Icy's meal out on the table, and it's uh, it, it's huge. She must have brought it in like a giant cooler or something. Because <laughs> it's just, there's a, there's a whole large chicken. There's, you know, bowls of all kinds of different. I don't know there's potatoes or cornbread or that that sort of right. stuff. You know, it's just a full spread. And Pearl is hungry. She wants supper. And Powell says, but first, we'll have a little talk about our secrets. And Pearl replies, no. But the way she says it just strikes me as hilarious. And I can't really explain why. It's just the particular tone of voice she says it in. <laughs> just got a huge well, kick out of it. And this also story-wise is pretty important because we said before, I mean, she was totally taken in by him. She loved this guy. She was willing, she would have been earlier in the film willing to tell him at the drop of a hat. And now even she's on to him, right? Yeah. After the way he treated her. So yeah, there's nobody with any illusions at this point. Yeah. So he's still sitting there with the, with the great, spread of food on the table and he pulls out his switchblade knife and he's talking about John being a meddler and he says this is what I use on meddlers he, he shows how the switchblade pops out of the knife and Pearl uh, is protesting that you know John made her swear not to say anything and Powell starts losing his cool he says John doesn't matter can't I get that through your head you poor silly disgusting little wretch <laughs> And then he apologizes for going overboard. And finally, to spare Pearl more abuse, John tells him that it's under a stone in the cellar, which, of course, isn't where it is. But right. he's hoping that Powell will go down to the basement, and while he's down there, the kids can run off. But Powell's too sharp for that. He has them lead the way down to the basement. Specifically, uh, we assume, so that they can't run. Because uh, he's he's probably got a good inkling of what John's got in mind, but the floor in the basement is concrete. There's no stone to hide money under. So Powell uh, he bends John over an apple barrel, holds him down there by the throat, and he takes out his switchblade again. He tells John to speak, or he's going to cut his throat. And at this, Pearl finally breaks down. And she confesses that the money's in the doll. Powell laughs. He has a good hearty laugh at this, uh, you know, because the, the, he he acknowledges the doll was a good hiding place. Yeah, he's he actually been holding it more than once, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then that, that shelf full of canned goods that rattled earlier and, and tipped off Powell that the kids were hiding in the basement, John pulls out a support post from under it, and it falls on Powell's head. It doesn't knock Powell out, but he is stunned for just a moment, and that moment gives the kids time to run upstairs. Powell chases after him, but he slips on a jar and falls to the ground. The, the kids get up to the top of the stairs first, and they slam the basement door on his fingers. And then, 
on the outside of the basement door, there are locks. So I'm not sure uh, if that's, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe that's to prevent burglars from coming in through the basement windows and coming up. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, that could make sense. For whatever reason, it's possible to lock the basement door from, from the kitchen. And then Powell yells, open that door, you spawn of the devil's own strumpet. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll have to use that line on somebody sometime. <laughs> <clears throat> they run down to useless old Uncle Bertie. Uh, you know, Uncle Bertie who told them, if you're ever in trouble, come to me. Well, don't come when he's drunk because yeah. you're not getting much help. He's drunk, he's snoring, and he can't be roused. Uh, the most they get out of him is he protests that he didn't he didn't do it, you yeah. know, refer- referring to the car being underwater. So Uncle Bertie is once again useless. That's two different useless incidents mm-hmm. on his behalf, uh, not telling the police and now not helping the kids. Mm-hmm. But at least he did repair that skiff, which uh, which early on in the movie, it wasn't clear that he would ever get around to doing that. So they run down the riverbank to get the skiff. And just as they get to it, Powell appears at the top of a hill near them. He's kind of a kind of turning into a Michael Myers figure. He hmm. just seems to know where they are all the time. Right. And uh, he calls to them from the top of this hill. The kids are getting into the skiff as Powell is wrestling his way down the hill through what Hash House Harriers would refer to as shiggy. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of brambles and a lot of mud. And so he's, he's not going as fast as he otherwise might. So it ends up being a very close call, but the kids finally push off from the shore. Powell chases them out into the water, and he's chest deep in the water. He's got his got a switchblade knife out, ready for action, but but they, the river pulls him out of his reach, and he yells in frustration. And then this begins, uh, you know, I was just talking a few mm, minutes ago mm-hmm. about uh, the visual stuff that, strictly speaking, doesn't advance the plot, but it does a lot to... Uh, uh, add a lot of memorable atmosphere. Yeah. Um, and this this river sequence where they spend uh, they spend a week going down the river. It turns out they will find out soon enough. This is a very dreamlike, atmospheric nighttime uh, sequence where they're just you know, slowly drifting down the river, and it's kind of like a magical you know fairyland or you know that kind of mood that evokes that. And the sets that are used for this are mostly, you know, when we we saw Kill Bill, we talked about there were a few sets like the airplane and the city of Tokyo and stuff where they're they're fake sets, but they're artistically fake. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're like you can tell it's not real, but it still looks good. And that's the way I think of these uh, sets in this river sequence. And in fact. From when I saw it years ago until I rewatched it now, I had remembered this whole river sequence as being like one long diorama, just just like a silhouette against a river background, mm-hmm. or, you know, silhouettes of trees and buildings and stuff. And actually, there is some of that, but there it's also intercut with a lot of other things. Like there's a, uh, we see a spider web sort of superimposed in the foreground while we see the boat go by in the background and there's a bullfrog just sitting there watching them go by and we see a stand of cattails you know and then we we also have interspersed with all that the uh 
silhouettes of the other shore going by. Yeah, and I think you mentioned it being dreamlike, and I think, and and I'm again, it's kind of embarrassing. Because I've seen the film many times, and I've said that it's uh, one of my favorites. But there's still stuff I'm putting together now, you know, with this more sort of detailed examination of it. We often see with water in movies that water is a transition point. So, like, a lot of times, for example, in a movie toward the end, the hero is in trouble and they fall into the water and then Mm. they're kind of reborn, right? They come out and that's the point at which they start, you know, being the hero and and winning over the bad guy or, or, you know, whatever, right? Well, in this Mm -hmm. case, they're not falling in the water, but it's their journey and it's a, a mystical journey and at the end, everything will be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. By by the time that this river trip is over, things are going to change uh, substantially for him. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there's, I mean, you could sacrifice a lot of this river sequence and still have the movie make perfect sense. Uh, but you'd be missing out on a lot of memorable atmosphere that's really i think it's it's quite well done yeah and this river sequence uh gets interrupted by uh, a view back in the uh back in the ice cream parlor uh walton i see have gotten a letter from powell explaining why he left left without saying goodbye he he took the kids down to his sister's farm and they uh they've been gone a week now so we the kids have been on the river for a week now then Walt mentions the uh, there was some unknown gypsy who killed a farmer and stole his horse, uh, and of course, that gypsy was actually Powell. <laughs> so back back on the river with John and Pearl, uh, they stop at a house, and the lady's just it's it's like she's handing stuff out to trick trick or treaters, except she's handing out potatoes to children of the Depression era who you know whether they're orphans or just don't have food at home or whatever. She's handed out potatoes. So John and Pearl each get a potato. We see uh, a sign advertising for uh, peach pickers, uh, just weekly work, you know, migrant farm worker work. And uh, Powell, we see him in overalls uh, standing around a campfire at night uh, with a bunch of the peach pickers, and he's lecturing them about youthful impudence. He's kind of disappointed with these kids. <laughs> and then we get more river scenes uh, for with John and Pearl. There's an owl. There's a turtle. We get a k- nice scenic uh, day for night shot. It's a you know actual shot of a river instead of a instead of a set. Uh, but it's not really a convincing day for a night shot. It just looks like day, but a little dimmer. <laughs> and then uh, we see some bunnies. And then we get another silhouette diorama type thing, which is a, a farm. There's a farmhouse, there's trees, you know, there's a barn. And this is where they pull ashore for uh, they're going to try and sleep on land tonight. In this farmhouse, and I'm pretty sure both the farmhouse and the barn that we see are just two-dimensional stand-ups, hmm. you know, that are cut out to look like they have perspective and depth and all that. In the, in the farmhouse, they hear someone singing, and they look through the window longingly, like they'd like to be in there. Mm. But they don't knock on the door. They go up instead uh, into the loft of the barn. And they sleep a while, and then out the hayloft window, John sees Powell 
Uh, he's silhouetted, like so much of what we've been seeing in the last few minutes. He's riding a horse on the road nearby, and he's singing, leaning on the everlasting mm -hmm. arms. And John asks himself, don't he never sleep? <laughs> Interesting thing about this shot, in order to do it, they had to use perspective tricks, kind of like we were talking about with the other ones. So that is actually a pony rather than a horse, and it yeah. is a little person on the pony hmm. playing his role so that uh, so that they could get the effect they wanted for that, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And it's one of those okay. cases where you would never realize, you know, when you're watching it, right? It doesn't, nothing about it makes you think they're playing those kind of tricks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I bought it. Yeah, I, there was something about the horse's pace that seemed a little odd to me, like it was slower than a guy might actually be riding a horse normally. Mm -hmm. But uh, but that could have just been my own imagination. Well, but it makes sense because probably a pony has, a, you know, doesn't have as uh, uh, large a step, right? So. Yeah, probably shorter legs and so yeah. forth. Yeah. So having seen him go by, uh, John rouses Pearl and they get back to the skiff. Now, I was thinking briefly about the logic of this because if he's going by, uh, you know, it might make sense to let him go by and then just, you know, Mm -hmm. Get up, get back on the river later on, and be behind him. But on the other hand, you know, since he's kind of the, uh, you know, as as I said earlier, the Michael Myers of the movie, you know, he's he's just gonna keep following you until he gets you. So you yeah. may as well keep moving. <laughs> so they get back in the skiff, and uh, there's a fox in a tree that barks at him, uh, and John steers through some mild rapids. And then they just drift downriver. Uh, both of the kids are asleep now, so the boat's just under. And the boat's got its own head now, I guess you'd say. Well, and, and I think thinking about it, that kind of relates to what I was talking about earlier, which is at this point they're in the hands of fate, right? And fate mm -hmm. is delivering them to this new, you know, to a protector, essentially. Right. Yeah, they're both asleep. And in the morning sun, we see them sleeping there still. Uh, but they've they've bumped up against the bank, and a woman orders them to get up, to get on up to my house, she says. <laughs> and she picks a cattail switch from the river bank to get them moving, uh, but she only uses it gently. She's not really whipping them with it. She's just sort of switching it around a little just to get them moving. John, uh, protecting his sister, he says, don't you hurt her, and the lady says, washer's more like it. <laughs> Uh, they go up to a nice little farmhouse. Uh, there are three younger girls working in the garden. What One of the girls is sort of high school age. The other two are younger. And this lady sends the young girls for bathing supplies to get these kids cleaned up. And she says to herself, gracious, so I've got two more mouths to feed. <laughs> and she gives the kids this bath just out in the yard. Uh, John tries to run from it, and the lady catches up with him easily enough and spanks him a few times just to get the point home. Then we see the lady leading her whole herd into town, all these five kids. Each one is cleaned up and carrying a basket. And as they go, she's this lady who we find out her name is Mrs. Cooper. Uh, she's talking to herself about strategies for selling the farm's products in a way that'll make the most money for the farm. And uh, she's talking with the grocer. She sees a couple, a man and a woman, you know, their arms around each other, standing down the street. She points them out to the grocer. She says, she'll be losing her mind to a tricky mouth and a full moon. And like as not, I'll be saddled with the consequences. 
So this is just the lady you dump your unwanted kids mm -hmm. on, apparently. Ruby, the high school age girl, she ran off briefly to browse the nearby magazine stand. And loitering next to the magazine stand uh, on the other side of the entrance to the drugstore, there's this kid loitering there. He's uh, he's kind of tall and skinny, you know, high school age kid. Uh, he he's relatively well kempt, but he also has this kind of sleazy vibe about him. He's he's got this little bow tie, you know, so he's. Yeah, kind of like a, um, do you remember Eddie Haskell from mm -hmm. Leave it to Beaver? Yeah, yep. kind of that type, you know, like he uh, he cleans up all right, but he's mm -hmm. still a little shit. So anyway, he wants Ruby to come back to town and meet him Thursday night. And she's actually been uh, cheating uh, Mrs. Cooper. She's been telling her that she's going to sewing lessons, but actually she's been coming into town to hang out with the men. Mm-hmm. So as Mrs. Cooper is talking to the grocer, she reveals she hasn't heard from her son, Ralph, since last Christmas. But she has a new crop now, she says, meaning these <laughs> new kids that she's with. And she says, I'm a strong tree with branches for many birds. I'm good for something in this old world, and I know it too. <laughs> and Miss Cooper is uh, uh, Lillian Gish, by the way, who also read that Bible story at the very beginning of the movie. Right. And you can tell from this, I mean, she sort of makes complaints about being saddled with kids, but it clearly is the purpose of her life. I mean, you know, she, it, you know, she would be lost if she didn't have all these kids to take care of. Yeah, yeah, she seems uh, seems content with her with her place in life. So that's good for her. It's night at the house, and she's telling the kids the story of Moses in the bulrushes. Uh, and it's you know, not a very veiled reference to, to John and Pearl. She even tells the story as Moses being in a skiff rather than in a, in a basket. <laughs> um, and it occurred to me while I was make, making my note on that, that the movie overall is told a lot like <laughs> a biblical story or a myth. You know, it's, it's elliptical. You've got odd details that aren't really necessary. Then some... Real details that you might want to know, you'll never get. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's sort of a minor parallel there. It is can it is a mythical mm -hmm. feel to it, and that that comes off at least for me. Uh, I remember thinking this the first time I watched it years ago was that uh, I was impressed with it overall, but it also seemed kind of weird <laughs> and uh it is weird and that's it, but it's well, weird in a good way and it's almost not impossible i guess that you could interpret it because of what we see what we saw in the very beginning where we had the kind of heavenly lillian gish and the kids you know and she's reading her own book she could almost be telling the this movie as a story right mm -hmm. and originally that scene was going to be at the end of the movie they were going to end it with her you know reading stories to the kids in that way and and decided to put it uh at the beginning and you know mm. i don't I don't think that's the intent. I don't think it's supposed to be this was all just a story, but it, it does give that storybook quality to it that they started it that way. Mm -hmm. So she's telling the story of Moses, and then we find that Ruby has gone into town. And it's, it's kind of a funny scene because we hear some lounge jazz playing, and we see these flashing neon signs. In one way, it evokes the sinful big city, but then again, the neon signs are things like restaurant and pharmacy <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. so it's right. i mean you know, fairly innocuous uh big city decadence but i will say that um 
I think I'm mixed on this. I need to think about it more. So I don't, I don't know if it could be a criticism of the film or what, but except for Lillian Gish and to some degree Icy Spoon, the women we see in here, everything from Pearl to Willa to Ruby, you know, most of the women in this movie are just, they're sex obsessed or, you know, in Pearl's case, obviously not sex obsessed, but she still gets obsessed or, you know, and loves um, and says she loves Powell. Mm-hmm. And Ruby is just looking for love and Willow was looking for love. And, and I think there's this kind of theme here that women just sort of get really dumb, you know, because they're, they're starry eyed looking, you know, looking for a man kind of thing. Mm. And even you could say, well, Lillian Gish is a woman and she's practical and she's on top of it, but also sort of like Icy Spoon, she's not a sexual person. Mm. Um, as presented here, right? So I, I think yeah. you could argue that a moral of this story, for better or for worse, is that if you have interest in the romantic slash sexual side, that that causes bad things to happen. Yeah, yeah. That uh, well, that's that's pretty much a theme in slasher movies, which was, yeah. I guess this kind of is in a yeah. way, or sort of a forerunner, a proto slasher movie, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's yeah, no, yeah. Every time a woman wants this, something bad happens as a result. Yeah, which you know, yeah. just like getting killed right after you have sex. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Ruby's in town, the uh, the sinful big city. She's over by the magazine rack near the entrance to the pharmacy, the soda fountain in there, and all that, and. Just as the sketchy kid is about to approach Ruby, Powell arrives and cock blocks him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, it's one of these cases where he just happens to be in the right place at the right time, you know, in that. <laughs> and and I, don't, I don't say that as a criticism of the story. I mean, sometimes we criticize stories for that because, like you say, mm-hmm. that's his character, right? He's always going to know where to be. Yeah, yeah, and you don't need to have the detailed technical explanation of all the footwork he did to get to this point. You know, yeah. just take it for granted that he's persistent. He's a real bastard. <laughs> <laughs> and Ruby, talking to Powell, we see that she's got a real manipulative streak. Uh, she's just, the first words out of her mouth are asking Powell if he'll buy her this magazine she's looking at. And right after that, she follows it up asking him to buy her an ice cream. Uh, and the boys nearby, uh, they're they're making some fun of it. One of them says, "Watch out, preacher!" And the other says, "Why, preacher?" <laughs> and Powell says, "Shut your dirty mouths." <laughs> and there's a later bit where she says something like, "She, w- in the future, she wouldn't even ask him to buy her something." And you get the impression. I mean, who knows how far she went with these kids because mm-hmm. they are pretty young, but certainly. She is sort of, yeah, extracting things from them for them to get whatever to whatever base they're going to. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she's definitely getting something out of it. Yeah, yeah, she seems to be uh, seems to be learning to uh, to deal, <laughs> so to speak. Anyway, uh, she, when they're sitting inside the pharmacy uh, or restaurant, I think I think it's like a pharmacy with a soda fountain and yeah. all that. But she says, uh, she says to Powell, ain't I pretty? She just, I mean, that just comes right out and says that. And, uh, he tells her what she wants to hear. And, uh, but he says it more emphatically, uh, at least from her response, it seems that what he says, uh, is more enthusiastic and more convincing than a lot of boys respond <laughs> to her. So she starts to develop a little bit of infatuation with him. And then during the course of the conversation, uh, Powell, of course, manages to weasel 
the facts about Pearl and John and the doll. Uh, he weasels those facts out of her pretty fast, and then he gets up from the table right away. He's got his information. He's going to go. And as he's leaving, Ruby asks him, did you ever see such pretty eyes? <laughs> wants to fish for all the compliments she can while she's got him available. Right. And then I think this is where, you know, after he leaves, this is where she tells that kid in the alley that next time she wouldn't even make him buy her stuff. So she's, uh, (laughs) she, you know, she has not picked up on the signs that he's not interested. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So back at home, Ruby is talking to Mrs. Cooper and Mrs. Cooper asks her a couple gentle questions and Ruby confesses that uh, she didn't go into town for sewing lessons. And Mrs. Cooper is very understanding about it. Uh, She says, uh, I lost the love of my son. I found it with you all. Ruby reveals that she and Powell had talked about John and Pearl. Mrs. Cooper asks, I wonder why he hasn't been to the house. And the very next thing you know, behold, now it's the next morning, and he's riding up (laughs) on his stolen white horse. I wanted to say about, you know, her reaction here, it is really compelling because we've seen so far most, especially older women in the film, be uh, judgmental, right? You know, we had Mm -hmm. very early on the one who was, you know, Uh, railing on them uh, about their father having stolen the money. And then we have, you know, Icy Spoon being a pretty judgmental person. And mm -hmm. and she's just – she's not – judgmental at all i mean she completely understands what's going on with ruby and that she's looking for affection and and you know she doesn't um she doesn't fight that and she to some degree i think like she knows it's going to happen so she's not going to try to get in the way of it you know which is that's one of the things you get into with parents and teenagers right is the parents trying to stop the teenager well the teenager's going to find a way right um yeah, yeah, we we see with Mrs. Cooper. I, I think a general rule is if there's something, something small that just needs to be done, she might be firm and stern about it. You know, even to the point of getting out a cattail hmm. and switching your backside with it. But when push comes to shove and something actually serious goes down, she, you know, she handles it with more compassion mm-hmm. appropriately. So. Yeah, neat. She's a neat character, I think. So Powell is riding up on his stolen horse, and he really lays on the preacherly piety, and he's got the crocodile tears are flowing as he's telling the story of these lost kids. uh, Mrs. Cooper sees his knuckle tattoos, and he goes into that story of love and hate. You know, obviously he's told it many, many times, but this time he's just being, he's very perfunctory and rapid about it. He almost sounds like he's a horse race announcer, given the story this time. And and he doesn't get far into it before Mrs. Cooper interrupts him to ask if they're his kids. Yeah, she's not impressed. But, I'll, but I think you're right. And, you know, he's not playing it the same way as he was previously, you know, he, in part, probably it's the audience, right? She's she's not buying it, and so he just comes off really badly. Where mm-hmm. if the audience is buying into it, maybe that kind of eggs him on to perform better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, could could very well be. Powell tells Mrs. Cooper that the kids are his own flesh and blood. His <laughs> wife ran off with the drummer and took the kids downriver. <laughs> I thought the drummer uh, thing was a bit weird, but it might be a tie-in <laughs> to jazz or something because you know jazz was this. 
Jazz was the thing that was corrupting all the kids and all that back, you know? Yeah, and I think it, I could be wrong, but I think that first burlesque dancer was dancing with some drum accompaniment. Right. So, yeah, could be a, could be various uh, undertones to that. Mrs. Cooper points out that it's strange how if the kids had been taken downriver, how did they ro- ride upriver in a <laughs> fairly large skiff that would have been hard for you know, she doesn't say it but it would have been hard for the kids to struggle against the current uh in that boat so powell calls for john and mrs cooper says john when your dad says come you should mind him john replies he ain't my dad and mrs cooper gives him sort of a significant mm-hmm. knowing look and then she says no and he ain't no preacher neither <laughs> <laughs> and i think you're right it's a good line but it probably was explicitly put in for that reason I was talking about, to make the censors happy, right? Uh, right, right. So it was clear that they weren't uh, maligning men of the cloth, that yeah. he's really just a big old phony. You know, it's funny, This you, you just give me this memory. When I was a pretty young kid, uh, I was visiting my grandparents, and we watched, again, actually it was a, it was a more modern version. This would have been in the 70s or early 80s of uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And the priests in this are are evil, right? And I was shocked. <laughs> mm-hmm. We had to like, you know, and I'm, I turned to my grandparents. And I'm like, but, but they can't be the bad guys. <laughs> it was really surprising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny because I've I've seen. It's been a while now, but I saw the Disney Hunchback of Notre Dame, and I thought the evil priest somewhere near the beginning. There's a scene where he ends up killing a woman on the steps of Notre Dame and uh, somebody comes out and criticizes him for it i think maybe it's a good priest there's like i think the i think the guy isn't actually a, is he a i don't know he's some <laughs> priest like he's like yeah. in some moral policeman something like that you know the type but but the point is that he shed this innocent blood on the steps of Notre Dame and it just to me it just gave me this real awful feeling of foreboding like oh buddy you screwed yourself over big time now (laughs) you know this is making me think um i think we should do a topic sometime where we go through the different versions of that story the hunchback story Mm. because there are a number of different famous and significant films starting back in the silent era there are one or two in the silent era there is the charles lawton one there's more modern ones so it might be interesting to, um, you know, kind of contrast these. Um, yeah. yeah. Sure, I'd be up for that. Yeah, good idea. Uh, we'll, we'll put that on our list of things that we're going to be doing until. <laughs> <laughs> All right, very good. So after Mrs. Cooper uh, says that uh, Mr. Powell ain't no preacher neither, uh, she goes back into the house uh, suddenly, and this is when Powell makes a move for the doll, which uh, Pearl has dropped at the foot of the porch steps. There's a little bit of reversion here, right? Pearl had been pretty upset with Powell the last time, but now she's back to liking him again, and she runs on t- into his arms and you know drops the doll while she's doing so. Mm. So I think she has like the memory of a goldfish or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could be, could be. Yeah, she is. She is pretty young too, so she's not, you know, entirely a rational being. Well, mm-hmm. not that any of us is totally, but uh, you know, she's got room to improve. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Powell makes a move for the doll, but John gets to it first, and he takes it under the porch. And Powell gets down on his knees, and he's reaching under the porch, trying to pull John out. And that's when... Well, he also, Cooper, before this, he actually pulls out his knife and, and extends it. So he is mm, yeah, ready to get he's serious got his, here. Uh, he's got his switchblade out. Yep. Yeah. And Mrs. Cooper comes out of the house with a shotgun. And... Uh, she scares off Powell. He, well, he what I thought was funny about this, though, is because he's because he has half of his body under the porch, he doesn't see her, and so she mm. has to reach down with the shotgun and poke him in the yeah, back. Yeah, she actually it. prods him with the end of the barrel to <laughs> get his attention. Kind of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so she has momentarily thwarted him, and he, he rides off, and he says, you whores of Babylon. <laughs> And uh, he he leaves with a parting threat. I'll be back when it's dark. Yeah, it's, I think I'm thinking like if you know, it's not a good idea to pre-announce uh, <laughs> your plans, but it, it does make for some suspense in the film. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, especially if you know the person that you're going to be back for has a shotgun, that yeah. you'd probably want the element of surprise. And, and she does make use of this information. Not that she wouldn't have done it anyway, but you know, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and the next scene comes up and suddenly it's dark and Powell is now out in the yard sitting in a rock and he's singing, leaning on the everlasting arms once again. Mrs. Cooper, meanwhile, is sitting on the porch, uh, with a shotgun where she can look at him. Now she's got, she doesn't have a light on, on the porch, so, uh, he can't really see her, at least not clearly. He might see a shadow or something. But as he continues singing, she joins in, but she sings a counterpoint uh, when he's singing, leaning, leaning. She's singing, leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, safe and secure from all alarms. So it's a it's an interesting contract or contrast because I I think throughout this whole movie, you know, for all that Powell talks to the Lord and you know, he mentions the God Jehovah at one point. But for all all the various religious and pseudo-religious talk that he does, I don't think he ever mentions Jesus or Christ once in the movie. So mm-hmm. he's, his theology, or he himself, uh, is literally Christless. Uh, so I think that may be, may be intentional on the part of the movie uh, makers, but I could be wrong, too. Well, I, I, I think you're right. I, I didn't realize that, but I think you're right. It probably both fits into that, trying to make it clear that he's not really a priest. But also, I think we see, because we've seen him alone talking to himself and talking to the Lord, mm-hmm. I think he believes he's talking to the Lord, and he believes the Lord is guiding him. And so you could say that since he doesn't reference Jesus or Christ and he talks directly to the Lord, you know, he may well see himself— in, <laughs> kind of in that role, you know. I mean, he um, he's channeling the Lord's will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, that that could be. He, he could actually be the mediator between God and man. I mean, he said we didn't mind. we didn't mention this. Uh, I didn't mention when I was doing my summary, but I think when he was in that striptease show in the very beginning of the movie, he says something. Basically, he makes it clear, like 
if he could, he'd he'd kill them all, right? He'd kill all the right. slutty women, and that's kind of his mission in life, you know. So, yeah. I mean, he's he's both obviously he's after money, uh, and that's you know, and you have to decide how much is that and how much is the other. But uh, but there's nothing about this that says he doesn't really want to kill all the slutty women. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he makes a remark, I think, something to the effect that uh, well, I guess you can't kill all the world or something yeah. like that. Yep. <laughs> So, uh, after they are done singing their little duet, Ruby comes downstairs uh, with a candle uh, onto the porch, and Mrs. Cooper scolds her for mooning about that mad dog of a man. <laughs> yeah, because once again, we have the silly woman who just won't give up on this guy, even though he's, you know, there to harm yeah, them. Yeah, yeah it's unfortunately, uh, does happen sometimes in real life, too. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, and, and it's not limited to women, either. Right. But uh, anyway, when Mrs. Cooper looks back to the yard, he's vanished. Uh, so, you know, I want to talk about this because it's an interesting effect shot, right? What happens is that Ruby has this candle, as you mentioned, and she walks in. And what they do, I don't quite know what they did in real time there because they're not using CGI or anything, obviously, mm-hmm. is instantly the candlelight wipes out a part of the window. Yeah, it, it looks like. It looked to to me like the candle itself had light that it was casting, but then they put some kind of spotlight to make right. it uh, emphasized. You right. know, like it was supposed to be reflected candlelight, but actually was augmentation. Right. So technically, you can't see him. And there's an interesting thing here, and I, I I don't know for sure, but I have a suspicion that when you watch this originally, you couldn't see him behind that, but when you watch it now you know, on a nice TV screen, et cetera, in, you know, full resolution, you see him duck down after the candlelight hits the window and get out of the way, right? I don't, again, I'm not sure. I don't think you were supposed to see that. It was just something you had to do. In fact, earlier, I forgot to mention, again, in my part, so it's my fault, when he (laughs) tells her to look at the mirror, when he tells Willa to look in the mirror and he's lecturing her, she's walking over to the mirror. Well, The way it's aligned and with the camera shot, he's in the mirror, but he needs to not be in the mirror for the shot when she is um, looking at it. So you actually, if you look, there's like a half a second where he, as an actor, he steps aside (laughs) so that he won't be reflected in the mirror. (laughs) And it's just kind of interesting. I just think you have these little things where, yeah, they didn't have the CGI and they just, you know, they just had to, to do it live and you know probably mm-hmm. you don't notice it it only takes up a split second and you know but it's kind of i always have fun seeing those little bits too. oh yeah <laughs> yeah so when uh when mrs cooper looks back to the yard he has he has vanished he's scarpered off somewhere and while she's standing there pondering her situation uh there's an owl <laughs> out in the yard and there's a rabbit uh, grazing underneath it and the owl swoops down and to get it, and you hear the rabbit give us a few despairing squeaks <laughs> as the owl presumably flies off with it. And Mrs. Cooper uh, says, it's a hard world for little things. <laughs> now, she she actually, you know, throughout this later part of the movie, she, she does a good bit of soliloquizing about yeah. the plight of children and so forth. And, and I would argue, kind of like you said, you know, there are a couple points where you could cut it down a little bit. I love this character, and I love Lillian Gish in this. I don't, 
I don't know that I've seen much else that she's been in, although I'm certainly mm-hmm. familiar with, with her face. That I think they went a little overboard in how much they have her going on and on about this sort of thing. I think you could have cut out two or three of those and it would have been a little tighter and a little less kind of over the top for me. But I think they yeah. just they wanted her to be such a saint, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is it is it does get a little bit uh uh, a little bit message heavy, maybe uh, yeah. at times. But then again, the whole movie is kind of um, you know, it veers between reality and surrealism. So I mean, I I, I wouldn't say it's a nearly as big a flaw in this movie as I might find it in uh, some other movies. Mm, yeah. So. Now we're in the kitchen, and the kids are all lined up in a tight little row, uh, just in a narrow section of wall between the sink and the staircase. Um, and it's, I, I don't know very much about tactics or XCOM or any of that, but I'm guessing that they're in a fairly good strategic position as far as being insulated from attacks by Powell, but. Uh, she's like marching back and forth in front of them like a prison guard or something. Yeah, Yeah, she's pacing in the kitchen. And uh, as she paces, she tells the story of King Herod's baby massacre and uh, Mary and Jesus's flight into Egypt. Then in in the next room, Mrs. Cooper sees Powell's shadow in the mirrors. She asks him what he's here for, and he wants them kids— and she warns him that she'll come shooting if he doesn't get out of there. Um, and just a moment later, he pops up. I mean, literally pops up just out of the bottom of the frame. <laughs> uh, he pops in, up in, in good, front of her. You know, in good bad guy monster, you know, Freddy or whatever, you know, oh, yeah. style. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she's as good as her word. She shoots him. And uh, he flees out of the house and runs into the barn and... He he's hollering hilariously the whole time, and either they put the same set of hollers on audio loop about three times, or he managed to replicate it a few times in a row. Nearly <laughs> I think you're perfectly. probably right. You know, yeah, but he is. I mean, once he's this happens, he's such a coward immediately. But also, <laughs> I love the fact that. They don't do what's, you know, now the typical movie thing, right, where she has to debate, is she going to shoot him? And then maybe he says, oh, you can't do it, you know, or whatever. Oh, no, right. He, he shows up, she shoots him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, kids, if you're in this situation, that's what you do. <laughs> you yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she, uh, I think she had the right uh, strategy there. <laughs> so she calls the state police now. And I can see, I mean, you don't want to try to, dive too much into the logic of this movie because it's not really a movie uh, whose strongest point is logic. But uh, I can see why she wouldn't have called the state police before because she really had nothing to to prove, like, it, it, or uh, there's nothing she could prove. Like, she couldn't just say, uh, well, this guy said he's going to be back tonight, so you could, could you maybe send a squad car to hang mm-hmm. out for all night? <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, of course, in those days, you know, they, they might've actually done it. You know, if it was a slow night, who knows? Well, yeah, I suspect she could have, because she's very, when she calls, whoever she calls, she's very familiar with them. Right. And she says, Mm. and it might just be the operator because they would have had an operator then. Um, and she just says, send the state troopers or whatever. Uh, I, I think she probably could have, but I think that she 
wanted to, I don't know. I, I think she wanted to be the protector or something, you know, and yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I don't want to overanalyze it, but, uh, <laughs> At any rate, she calls the police now, or talks to the operator, perhaps. So the police are going to be on the way. But then we see that it's sunrise, um, and she's out on the porch with the uh, with the shotgun. So presumably it's been a little while since she called, because I don't right. think the sun was up when she shot the guy. And she steps away from the porch, which is kind of a risky move, because he's out in the barn, and he can just sneak out while she's not watching, but... She steps away to heat some water on the stove, and she gives us another little uh, little moral about the children. You know, she says, children are man at his strongest. They abide. <laughs> the police finally arrive, uh, and, and there are two carloads of them. Uh, I had uh, the remark in here, there's a joke among uh, gun enthusiasts, you know, that uh, when every second counts, the police are only <laughs> minutes away. And, yeah. Uh, apparently, in this case, it's more like uh, hours away, but they did show up. So. But related to what we were just talking about, they criticized her for not calling them earlier, right? So they said <laughs> she should have called. <laughs> yeah. So Powell comes out of the barn, finally. He's he's holding his knife high in the air. It looks like he may be wanting to start something. But uh, eventually, the police just handcuff him without too much incident. And John is sad to see it. As, as you pointed out earlier, uh, this is evocative of his own real father's arrest uh, right. years or not, not years ago. It would have been probably just weeks ago. Yeah. Well, the arrest, let's see. Well, he would have had to be been sentenced and convicted and executed. So it was a while ago anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he's sad to see Powell getting taken down now after, after what a big enemy Powell has been to him and, and just a constant threat for this last Well, I think he just more. breaks at this point, right? I mean, he's been yeah. such an adult. He's been so on top of it in a way that a kid his age shouldn't have to be right. this whole time. And at this point, he just loses it. You know? Oh, yeah. And he, he's, you know, it's almost like he's seeing Powell now as his dad being arrested. Yeah. Um, because that was right after his dad had told him about the location where he hid the money and all that. So so John runs over to Powell as he's being arrested, and he's he's got the doll in his hand. I think Jenny, was that the doll's name? But whatever uh, yeah. the doll so, is. Uh, he's, he's smacking Powell's body lying on the ground. He's smacking it with the doll. He's yelling, take it back, Dad. I don't want it, Dad. Uh, and the doll bursts open, and the money's flying all over the place. And I was briefly sorry to see this because, of course, the police are going to collect up the money and take <laughs> it all downtown with them. But uh, but then I remembered that it, since it was stolen money, then Mrs. Cooper probably would have turned it in anyway. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's not a big <laughs> she, deal. She's uh, that kind of foolish person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Mrs. Cooper uh, picks up John and carries him away from the from Powell and the arrest, and then we're in court and. Icy and Walt Spoon are sitting in the crowd, and they're disrupting the proceedings. They call Powell Bluebeard, and they yell about the 25 wives he killed, which is entirely possible. We we heard early on, I think he said, uh, how many is it, Lord Six or a dozen? Or, right, but, right. Uh, so it's one of those where we don't know. But uh, there's also a, there's this dynamic here they're capturing, which I think is very real, right, which is the people who are now just furious and you know want him hung or drawn and quartered or whatever these are the people who were totally totally in his camp and drawn in 
by him, right? And there's oh, just sure, and it's uh, I mean, it's understandable both of those things, but it's also a little bit of a you know, it, it makes you feel like some of their venom is because they were taken in and they sort of right. participated in all this, you know. Yeah, they they got duped, and now uh, that that just makes it all the more imperative that they should now get some justice. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, definitely uh, you know, and particularly Icy, who was about his biggest champion through the whole ordeal. Uh, uh, she's probably feeling the most betrayed of anybody mm-hmm. present. So they're calling him Bluebeard. Mrs. Cooper and the kids leave the court to visit the local diner, and a crowd forms outside the windows just to watch them eat. They're like minor celebrities now because of the big, the big. It's a little confusing to me that. though, because also the crowd seems sort of hostile to them. I mean, it's. Uh, yeah. Sure, I didn't get that impression. I got mm. the impression that they were, you know, I see, I see, stirring up the mob, but she's saying these are the poor victims of that man in there. Mm. She's stirring up the mob against Powell. That's what. That's the way I saw it, though. That maybe there's well, something you saw. I, I think that you're I probably didn't. right. It's just it, the the reason it's a little confusing is you have this violent mob who is also sort of coming after them in the, you know, in the restaurant, and so it's hard to kind of separate out the fact that they're a violent mob and the, you know why they're coming after them. But I, I think yeah, you're probably right. But. They're a mob of more like admirers or uh, <laughs> you know uh, groupies or something in this yeah. case. Yeah. Anyway, now we after after they've left the diner out the back door and snuck off. We see that Icy is is really going all out to stir up a lynch mob. They've got torches, they've got axes. Some of them are carrying table legs. I mean, just all kinds of stuff, whatever was at hand. They're, <laughs> They're even like grabbing furniture and just smashing it against the wall until they have, <laughs> uh, you know, something they can hit somebody with. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Mrs. Cooper takes a side street to try to avoid the mob and they cross over a street uh in front of the oncoming mob uh and it's now very big it's uh there's a powell's in big trouble if if he falls into their hands so we see police escorting powell out the back door of the police station into a car for his safety and early on i i don't know if we discussed this but early on we had a brief glimpse of a hangman who was talking about how he just Felt lousy, even though he didn't do the actual hanging. He had to set up the gallows or some such thing, right. you know, and he always felt bad about it afterwards. And mm-hmm. so the police now, they yell to this hangman who happens to be leaving his house or standing outside his door or something. He, they yell, we're saving this bird up for you. And the hangman, who was earlier despondent about his job, now says, this time it'll be a privilege. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that's the last word we get about uh, the fate of Powell, that I'm, I'm yeah. guessing he didn't work out too well for him. Yeah. And then we see the exterior of the Cooper home again, uh, but it's snowing now, so some time has elapsed uh, just since the last scene. Mrs. Cooper checks the mail. There's none in there, and, and she's obviously disappointed there's nothing in there, but but she says she's glad. Uh, she says that when they do bother to send something, it's to... Show me how fancy and smart they've come up in the world. Uh, she's, yeah, sort of sour grapes type thing, but uh, <laughs> she'll live. She's got a full house of kids to attend to. And the girls have presents for Mrs. Cooper. They've made her potholders. 
Uh, Which apparently they do every year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I think I've made a pot holder or two in my day. My, <laughs> I used to have uh, my sister, I think, had one of those little, uh, it was this little square loom thing, and you'd get these elastic bands, and you could weave them into pot <laughs> holders and stuff. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a time-honored uh, gift for, for parents and caretakers. John goes into the other room, and his gift is... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's 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 the best he can do under the well, circumstances. Well, apparently he hadn't thought about it before, and he probably doesn't have anything, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he I goes into the other room, and he he's there's a bowl of apples sitting on a nice little lace doily. So he takes the lace doily from under the bowl, <laughs> and then he wraps it into a sort of a, a fixture, or you know, a, a display piece, and he puts one of the apples in the middle of it. He brings it into the kitchen and hands it to Mrs. Cooper. You know, of course, he doesn't have a regular income that he can go out buying presents with and stuff. So so Mrs. Cooper says that's the richest gift a body could have because <laughs> uh, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, I guess, is the reason she said that. That's my hypothesis. Mm-hmm. But so she sends the girls into the other room for presents. But she pulls Ruby aside and uh, gives her a nice silver brooch, which will uh, probably not do a whole lot to make her more attractive to the guys than she already is because they already seem pretty keen on her. But uh, she's delighted to get it anyway. Yeah. It's a nice little brooch. Mrs. Cooper, she monologues alone in the kitchen about children. Uh, and the upshot is that they abide, so uh, they're pretty much like the dude in that respect. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the presents are opened, and the girls come back into the kitchen and hug her, and they run upstairs. And she's gotten John a very nice pocket watch, and he's happy with it. It's the nicest watch he's ever owned, and he runs upstairs to join the other kids. And Mrs. Cooper says they abide and they endure. And we get an exterior shot of the farmhouse on this snowy Christmas day, and that's the end. (laughs) And I don't know if they cut some stuff out, but, you know, the watch ties back to literally just like two seconds early in the film when he's looking in the window of a store, uh, you know, looking at a watch that he apparently wants. But they never make anything else of it. There's not a – it doesn't tie into anything. I I think it's Mm – it's an unusual thing in here where where I think something is missing or or something because you don't know why he wants a watch or did he you know did his dad give him a watch at some point or you know there's just it's just kind of hanging out there you know right yeah yeah they they don't really do a lot to uh integrate it more you know they do that little foreshadowing bit but we don't really know any deeper significance to it or anything like that but, uh, you know, so we have a happy ever after ending here. Yeah, yeah nice happy ending. <laughs> I put Harry Powell up there into what I would think of as one of the top three bad guys in cinema, right? So number mm-hmm. one is sort of Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah. uh, number two is Anton Sugar, who's, you know, from uh, well, No was... Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then this guy. And, and, you know, actually maybe also the very fine character in... Schindler's List? Schindler's List. Yeah, he's up there too. But, 
you know, I, I think I just I think that his character is really terrifying and and fascinating and, you know, fits in at that level. Hmm. Yeah, I could uh, I'd, I'd probably have a different list of guys overall, but I'd say they're all uh, they're all strong contenders. Sure. <laughs> well, you know, we, we talked about a lot of this and we went through in terms of the acting and the actors. And is there, is there anything uh, that stands out for you uh, in terms of the actors? Or? Nothing that I don't think I've mentioned already. Um, yeah, they uh, they were good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and certainly, uh, you know, Powell, as you say, one of the top three bad guys. He, he, this is an excellent performance, and it is. If you don't know what's coming, you know, he most of the time, even when he's starting to get steamed up, he's fairly polite and reserved. But there's, you know, when you see that he's starting to get annoyed, uh, you wonder just how far it's going to go this time. Yeah, yeah, he definitely did have a uh, pretty special performance in this movie. But I, I and the guy he's of... the guy he's based on did kill two kids. Oh wow! So you know, obviously they weren't going to do anything like that in this movie. But you know, oh, that's sure. how serious it was. Yeah. Huh. For the other actors, not much. I mean, uh, Shelley Winters uh, in her role, I thought she became very convincingly spaced out. <laughs> I, I I bought it, and she she said later that she felt it was probably her best performance, you know, and her most subtle performance. And one of the uh, things interesting about the film is that you know a lot of times, even with these classics, then you'll hear all these horror stories about how terrible it was on the set, or you know how the director was yelling at everybody or whatever. But most of the actors in this have said it was like the best experience of their career, and they really enjoyed it and all that, which is interesting because. Uh, as we say, you know, when it came out, it was a failure. And it's, I mean, it's gone so under so much reconsideration since then to the degree that in one case, there's a you know, famous French film magazine that does one of the, you know, top 100 films of all time, kind of every year sort of thing. And at one point, they had this as the second best film of all time. Oh, wow. Now, even for me, even though I love the film, I think that's probably a bit too much. I, I think that's a little unrealistic, but, you know, it just shows the degree to which, I mean, nobody liked it when it came out mm-hmm. and it was a dud and it has now become this, this big classic. Now, I don't know how much the average person on the street is aware of this. Like everybody's heard of Cin- Citizen Kane, right? Whether they like it or not, they've heard of it. Yeah. Uh, I Not everybody has heard of this film. I don't, I don't think it's as famous as that, but people who are in the film world, it's, it's absolutely... Uh, way up there. Oh, yeah. And as I said, you know, at the beginning, I just think that it's a real shame that this caused Lawton to give up his directing career because it would have been amazing. This is his very first film, and the the actors even said he was very insecure on the set, and if anybody had a suggestion or a criticism, he would immediately kind of do that. Like, you... Watching, you'd think the director knew exactly what he wanted, sort of in that, you know, Kubrick style or, or whatever... But apparently that's not the case, and he was very collaborative, and they all just really enjoyed working on it. So, yeah, I think that uh, that we lost out, and especially given that his acting roles are not something that have really persisted in the modern world, right? I mean, we know about Charlie Chaplin. We know about other people from that time or earlier, but, but nobody now really knows about Charles Lawton. They couldn't name a role that he played. I think his, his real, even though he was a great actor, his real gift may really have been directing. <laughs> it's just too bad. Huh. Yeah, that's a, that's a pity. I, based on this one movie, I, I 
probably would have enjoyed seeing other movies by him. So that's, uh, yeah, what could now, have been. So, you know, the question here is you can have a film that's influential and you can have a film that, you know, you may enjoy for nostalgic reasons or, or whatever. But then this comes to what I'll put to you, um, since obviously I like the film, since I, I suggested it. With all of that, is it something that, that you would consider worth watching for a modern audience? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really a neat movie. It is, it is different. It's, just, it, it's weird in some ways. <laughs> it's, it's got that dreamlike quality in some parts. Where other parts, it, it seems just very ordinary, realistic. Uh, but, you know, then it, it wavers on the boundary between realism and surrealism, mm. I guess I'd say. But, uh, yeah, it's, an, it's a neat movie. I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites the way it is your, one of your favorites. But I definitely like it. I'd probably even watch it again a couple of years down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely would recommend checking it out. It's uh, got a lot of a uh, lot of neat, clever stuff in it, and uh, uh, it is a little weird, but weird in a good way. I'd say. And and for me, it fits that kind of original definition we talked about with words watching, which is if you know if I know that somebody hasn't seen it, then I'm going to want to sit them down and show it to them, right? Because I just think it's a really worthwhile experience um to have oh yeah and for a guy like me who i I really like the visual imagery of production design and so forth and uh as we've discussed there are several very visually powerful uh sections in this movie um it's something that uh if you tried to say make a radio play out of it, um, there's a lot of value in this movie that wouldn't come across. Yeah, that's true. It would be more of a just regular sort of crime story. Yeah. Than the mythology, because yeah, a lot of the mythological stuff comes out of how it's shot. Right. All right. Well, there you have it. We recommend this film. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, hopefully this episode made you interested in it. And next week we will see what guy chooses to watch. Oh, I guess I'm under the gun now. (laughs) Okay, I'll start looking at my list of candidates then. (laughs) Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning. Leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. What a fellowship, what a joy divine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, leaning on.
booty around the house after that mad dog of a man. <sighs> Mr. Flavins. Ruby, go get the children out of bed and bring them down here. Women are such germ fools. It's a hard world for little things. 